What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Hello, is there anybody in there? I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, everybody. Yeah, Joe. I, I have a question for you. Ask away. Okay. Are you conscious? Uh, barely. Uh, yeah, I was going to make a similar statement, but I'll, I will say that I am confident that I'm conscious. I'm not confident that that's my preferable state of being right at this very moment. <laughs> well, I'm not conscious. Uh, <laughs> so you're just... You're, I just wanted to get that on the record. You're just speaking <laughs> unconsciously. You are you are channeling some sort of unconscious mind. No, no, no. I, I'm what uh, philosophers, some philosophers might refer to as a P-zombie. I uh, display all of the outward appearance of being a conscious entity, but I have no inner experience. I, I have no qualia, they might say. Ah, gotcha. Well, the whole purpose of this uh, <laughs> this charming intro, where we discover that our friend and compatriot Joe is in fact not what he seems to be, 
he only that's all he is i guess right. is really so i guess it's the opposite of that he's exactly what he seems to be and no more than that uh we wanted to talk about consciousness and as it turns out i mean this is a subject that has been a matter of discussion in philosophical circles for centuries oh yeah i mean this is one of those you things might like say millennia yeah exactly well, there's there are uh, there's evidence of uh, pre-literate cultures having at least some concept of things that tie into consciousness. And uh, there's going to be a lot of vague discussion in this episode, mainly because consciousness is a, it's tricky to even define it, right? Yeah, there's sort of a question here. Uh, is consciousness a matter of philosophy, something we just sort of reason and talk about in the abstract? Or is it a question that is susceptible to science? Can you scientifically? Oh, right. Is there a mechanism that is consciousness? Yeah. Is, yeah. Is there is there something that we can point to in the brain and say, this is where consciousness comes from and this is what it means? Yeah. So for the longest time, this was sort of the realm of the philosophers. There were really weren't a whole lot of scientific inroads to consciousness. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where uh, John Locke. The 17th century philosopher was talking about how consciousness had to be essential for thought and for personal identity. This is, by the way, a view that many philosophers, but not all philosophers, share. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, philosophers early in this episode and just kind of the, the different uh, perspectives when it comes to consciousness. Well, yeah, I think the philosophical perspectives are a good way to begin the, the, this discussion because we're going to talk about some new scientific discoveries. Uh, yeah, that are related to consciousness. So there's this idea you may have heard of. So it's called the hard problem of consciousness. Are you familiar with this? Uh, it's usually what I think when I'm trying desperately to go to sleep and insomnia is taking hold, right? <laughs> it's the hard problem. Yeah, that's basically right. No, that's not it at all. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> well, I, I have a fundamental misunderstanding. Joe, pray, do elaborate and enlighten me. Okay, so for a while now, some philosophers have divided questions about consciousness into basically two categories. You have the hard problem and then you have the easy problems, problems plural with easy so the Australian philosopher David Chalmers, he's written a lot about this. And in a 1995 paper called Facing Up to the Problem of Consciousness, he defined the easy problems as the ones that pretty much everybody can admit can potentially be solved by science. OK, so the easy problems include things like locating the mechanisms behind individual cognitive functions, for example, the ability to discriminate categorize and react to environmental stimuli. These are his words now. Uh, the integration of information behind a cognitive system, the reportability of mental states, the ability of a system to access its own internal states, the focus of attention, the, the deliberate control of behavior, the difference between wakefulness and sleep. Those are just some examples he listed. So the idea is, okay, I think pretty much everybody's on board. We can find the Things that are happening in the brain right. that cause each of those. The regions of the brain responsible and the actual processes that manifest the in these ways. The electrochemical, right. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, th these might be, now, he called them easy sort of in context. These might in practice be very, very hard to solve. Easy in the sense that it is probably possible. Right. Rather right. than uh, something that is probably impossible. Uh, so as difficult as these might be to suss out, uh, what is his hard problem? Yeah. So Chalmers defines the hard problem as, quote, 
the problem of experience. And he goes on to say, when we think and perceive there is a whir of information processing, but there is also a subjective aspect. As Nagel has put it, and he's referring to the philosopher Thomas Nagel, there is, quote, something it is like to be a conscious organism. This subjective aspect is experience. So he, he also, later on in the paper, sort of tries to say maybe it's easier to just use the term experience rather than consciousness, because that's really what the hard problem of consciousness is all about. What generates this thing we know as experience? You are having an experience right now. Lauren, and you are having one, Jonathan, but I am not having one because I'm a pea zombie. Uh, or uh, a rock probably is not having one as far as we know. Right. What causes this? Now, there's this group of people who are often referred to maybe disparagingly, maybe not, as the new Mysterians. They're the philosophers who have basically concluded that the second problem, the hard problem of consciousness or experience, will never be solved by humans. Uh, in other words, while we may learn more and more about the brain and the individual functions of the brain, we're just never really going to be able to understand the origins of this uh, this complex final product of brain called experience. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different ways you could arrive at this conclusion. Th- there might be some people who could see like a technical problem with the inquiry or the question, say you're not framing it right, or they might define consciousness in such a way that makes the search for a mechanism impossible. Or you could have dualists who that means somebody who thinks that the mind and the brain are actually separate substances. There's like a soul or an over spirit, Mm -hmm. some kind of Mm -hmm. other spiritual thing that controls consciousness and it's just not found in the brain. Or you might have people who accept the problem and the framing of the question and they agree that there might be a physical basis for the mind, but they just simply don't think that human minds are capable of solving the task. Uh, so for an example, the final one, I found a quote by the British philosopher Colin McGinn in a 2012 piece for the New Statesman called All Machine and No Ghost? Question <laughs> mark. Um, so he says, Paleoanthropologists have taught us that the human brain gradually evolved from ancestral brains, particularly in concert with practical tool-making, centering on the anatomy of the human hand. This history shaped and constrained the form of intelligence now housed in our skulls, as the lifestyle of other species form their set of cognitive skills. What chance is there that an intelligence geared to making stone tools and grounded in the contingent particularities of the human hand can aspire to uncover all the mysteries of the universe? Can omniscience spring from an opposable thumb? It seems unlikely, so why presume that the mysteries of consciousness will be revealed to a thumb-shaped brain like ours? The, quote, Mysterianism, unquote, I advocate, is really nothing more than the acknowledgement that human intelligence is a local, contingent, temporal, practical, and expendable feature of life on Earth, an incremental adaptation based on earlier forms of intelligence that no one would regard as fairly omniscient. Um... I would argue that just his ability to frame it in such a way kind of dismisses his own argument at some <laughs> extent, because what sort of how would you how would you say that if you take his premise that that, you know, all of our achievement is and I know he's making a point, he's oversimplifying. Right. But if you take his premise that a lot of our achievements are all due to this whole opposable thumb approach, 
you would never have reached a point where you could even frame an argument in that sense. It's, no, it's, I, I think it I, helps disprove itself. I, I, I get it. It's sort of a agnosticism of, of we don't know and we can't know. Kind I, of I find that, I, I find that personally a little pessimistic. I mean, I think of some of the achievements that have, we have already as a species seen. I mean, not even recent ones, I'm talking throughout all of human history, that to me suggests that you should never really underestimate human ability and achievement. Yeah, I don't want to dismiss this point of view out of hand, the no. point of view expressed oh, sure. by McGinn and the quote I read. Like, I think there's some intelligence behind it. That Absolutely. There is some interesting thinking, but I, in the end, I can't really go along with yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate what he's saying. And and let's go ahead and say this. I am absolutely certain that he is far more intelligent than I am. I do not, <laughs> I do not mean to suggest otherwise. I just do, do not agree with that particular philosophy. Uh, well, as, as science minded people, or rather two science minded people and some kind of weird automaton, yeah. um, <laughs> we, we have to believe that I mean, you know, we like to believe generally that science is going to come up with answers for yeah. all yeah, that's of true. the mysteries of the universe. So I guess that forces us to ask the question, has science found anything interesting that might bear on this question? So is there anything we can come back at the Mysterians with right now? Well, th- before we get into that, let's first just address the fact that this has been a difficult problem for science, not just for philosophy, because the human brain, as we have discussed in previous episodes of Forward Thinking, is a complex little critter. Yeah, and to kind of devil's advocate for the <laughs> yes, I verb that noun all I the time. I love that. Please, <laughs> please do that all the time. Advocate devilishly, Lauren. <laughs> for the point of view that we can't figure this kind of thing out, we certainly haven't yet. Like we've got a few leads, sure, and there's yeah. one in specific that we're going to be talking about, right? But. But there's so much, so much about the brain that we don't know. Yeah, I, I described it in the episode as if we have a general map that's missing tons of detail. So we have, we know the general parameters of the human brain. We know some of the regions. We know what some of the regions do, or at least we have very strong evidence supporting what those regions of the brain do. But when you start getting beyond that, it gets really murky really fast. And it's not like one of the... GPS units is down or something like that. It's more like there be dragons. Like exactly. Kind yeah. Of this is this is the, the earliest days when cartographers were making observations of landscapes and doing their best to represent that so that future generations won't run their their ships upon the breakers. Right. They're not. They. That's the whole kind of place we're in, neurologically speaking, as far as uh, brain science goes. That's not to say that we don't have top scientists working on it right now. (laughs) We do. But uh, it is one of those things where we can't just easily say this is exactly how this particular brain function works. I mean, in our discussion about memory, we talked about how we've made a lot of uh, progress toward understanding memory. But that's just progress toward it. We don't have a full working like document saying this is how we encode and uh, and decode memory, how we recall memory, how we re-encode it so that we can recall it again later and uh, exactly what the mechanism is. If we had that and we knew exactly how it worked, we could probably even work on ways to improve memory so that it's actually reliable. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, we, we can't. So we have to first be completely honest about that, that the, the brain is still very much 
at large a thing of mystery to us. One of the other things I think we should acknowledge is the limitations that some are practical, some might be ethical on what we can do with the brain. I mean, so you can do fMRI. You can put somebody in a scanner and look at which parts of the brain are getting blood flow and lighting up with activity. You can do experiments like that, but those kinds of experiments only show you so much. Right. And to get really into the nitty and or gritty of the brain, one often has to pop the top as in remove part of the skull and put some probes on in there. Some and as it turns electrical out, electrical or chemical sensors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You got you got to you got to zap some cells, essentially, is what we're talking about. And here's the issue here. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get people to volunteer to be part of such a, a, an experiment. Yeah. That's not a nice thing to do to somebody unless they've agreed to it. Yeah. So you're right. So if you're not, if they <laughs> right. haven't agreed yeah. to it. <laughs> You There's the ethical issue, it. right? Yeah. And, and B, right. That's not really my idea of a fun Tuesday. Right. If I'm, if I'm going, like, I think about, I take the train to and from work, right? And every time I take the train, there's always some advertisement somewhere for some sort of medical study. Sure. And they're targeting students mainly who are uh, able to have the time and the willingness to put themselves through some sort of study and they get a small compensation for doing so. I cannot imagine a compensation great enough for your average student to to say, yeah, I don't mind if you shave my head, cut open my skull, insert a probe and mess around. So... It's really hard to do fundamental research on living brains in an ethical and responsible way. So that's one of the big reasons why our, our, uh, our knowledge is so limited. It's that practically speaking, it's hard to do. So that being said, we can, uh, we can definitely talk about some efforts that science has made in order to really understand consciousness. And one of them totally blows my mind. <laughs> Are you uh, talking about Max? Yeah, our, our buddy, Tegmark, Max Tegmark <laughs> of MIT. Uh, by buddy, I mean someone that has no idea who we are and we have never met. But Max Tegmark of MIT uh, has proposed that we think of consciousness as a new state of matter. So we've got, you know, we've got uh, solid, liquid, gas, plasma, Consciousness. Yeah. So he, he has proposed, uh, a, let's, let's call it a hypothetical form of, of matter called. Oh, he, he, yeah, he calls it a hypothesis. Yeah. He's it's not a, saying, he's like, not this saying is there really I is. Found out. Yeah, but it's called perceptonium, which, like unobtainium and transformium, is largely an, uh, imaginary substance. But the reason why he proposes it is so that scientists can start to think about consciousness as if it is a physical substance in order to start applying various scientific and mathematical principles to the various elements of consciousness. It's really all about... It's a, it's a placeholder. Yeah. Sort of the same way that... Dark energy, dark sure. matter, mm-hmm. or uh, the Higgs boson until we discovered it. Not not us, personally. I mean, we were busy that day. I, I didn't. No, but scientists <laughs> discovered it. So it's really a placeholder. Uh, but it's meant to be something that allows scientists to kind of conceive of consciousness in a way that makes it more uh, more solid in a way, uh, an idea where they can actually start forming various scientific uh, theories about it and testing them. 
I think what he sort of said he wanted was to create a framework where we could do mathematics exactly with res- with respect to thinking. Yeah, the idea of exploring how the physical laws of the universe themselves could give rise to consciousness and also ultimately allow us to better understand how it is we perceive the world the way we do and why we do. And by the way, if you guys listening at home ever hear any rumbling, we're doing this apparently in the middle of an amazing thunderstorm. Yeah. That uh, I don't I don't suggest that such thunderstorm is conscious, by the way. I well, I OK, we can agree to disagree. On that okay. Yeah. If you're a panpsychist, you might think that that uh, <laughs> that cloud has some rudimentary form of consciousness. Yeah. At any rate. Um, OK, so we've been talking about consciousness as with the potential that it is a physical bit of matter, perhaps. Right. So if it's a physical thing. And if perhaps it operates vaguely like computers, does it have an on-off switch? That's a f- interesting question that you <laughs> asked, and I'm glad you did, because the answer appears to be maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm definitely hedging my bets on this one, because uh, as you'll see when we talk about this case, there are a lot of things you have to take into consideration. Absolutely. Which means that making any kind of yes or no statement would be... Uh, uh, Premature, I would say. Well, as a preface, yeah, we're about to tell you a story that is very interesting, but we don't know for sure if it means what we think it means. Right. Right. But it's certainly exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the story. Here's the story. Once upon a time, there was a team of doctors who were working at George Washington University, and they were working with a patient who suffered from epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Now, epilepsy is caused by having uh, abnormal activity in the brain. The neurons fire abnormally. Usually you you can think of it as uh, uh, just an overload of of, uh, discharging neurons in a way. And it manifests itself in various types of symptoms. Not all of them are the the dramatic seizures that we often think of as an epileptic fit. Some of them are things where someone just loses focus, uh, but it often will be accompanied by a loss of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now, these doctors weren't necessarily looking for anything that had to relate to consciousness. What they were looking for was what part of the this patient's brain was responsible for triggering these seizures. Uh, yeah, they were doing a case study. So they were kind of basically poking around and stimulating different bits of her brain. Exactly. In order to kind of see what happened. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, it makes me think of the scene in Buckaroo Banzai where they're <laughs> performing brain surgery and Buckaroo Banzai says to one of his fellow surgeons, no, no, don't touch that. You never know what it's connected to. Uh, So in this case, what they were doing was they were stimulating, like you said, different regions of the brain. And at one point, they reach a part of the brain called the colostrum. And when they uh, use the the electrodes to stimulate that part of the brain, the patient would stop whatever she was doing. She would gradually lose consciousness. It didn't sound like it was a instant thing. It sounded more like it was a process. So she would lose consciousness and then just sort of stare off into the distance, not at anything in particular, mm-hmm. until they stopped stimulating that part of the brain, in which case she would recover 
but have no recollection of the moments that had passed while that part of our brain was being stimulated. Almost as if it had just never happened. Yeah. So if anyone's ever had one of those moments where, you know, you've blacked out for one reason or another, it could be a reaction to medication. It could be head trauma. It could be an epileptic seizure, Mm -hmm. whatever. If it's one of those moments where you are now alert, you remember exactly what you were doing before you had that moment but you have no recollection of what happened in between and other people have to tell you and you just have to go on what they said. That's what was going on scientifically in the lab at this moment. And again, the doctors were not looking for this. They just happened to they stumble happened to upon cross it. it. Right. And so it was at that point where they said, you know, it's possible that the claustrum, this thin membrane that's under the neocortex in the brain, this thin membrane, it may be the key the on-off switch for consciousness, not to say that it's ultimately responsible for what we call consciousness, but it might be one element that without it, you can't have consciousness. It doesn't it, it might be like the linchpin that ties everything together. Right. Because there are a lot of different ways of explaining what consciousness exactly would be or if it would have a location within the brain. But an, an interesting way of thinking about it is, OK, so you have lots of different things going on in your brain at any given time. You're processing visual data. Mm-hmm. You're processing auditory data. You're accessing memories from mm-hmm. the past. You are uh, having motor control. You're speaking. And somehow all of these things come together in our brain to create this thing we think of as experience. Right. Yep. But all of these things are separate. Yeah. So what's combining them for us in this way? What's creating the thing that 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 makes a continuous, conscious, single experience? It could be that there is one organ in the brain that takes everything and smashes it together and makes you an experience. And previous research has suggested that that thing might, in fact, be the claustrum. Uh Back in 2004, Francis Crick, who's one of the guys who helped suss out the structure of DNA back in the 1950s, along with Christoph Koch, who is a prominent neuroscientist, noted that the claustrum receives input from and projects output to almost all of the regions of the cortex. And they speculated that if, you know, the philosophical concept of consciousness is indeed the sum of cooperative activity of the senses and the nervous system together, that the claustrum might be certainly worth further study. This was backed up in 2012 when another group of researchers published a paper hypothesizing that, I mean, well, well, basically that these guys were correct based on studies that they did of signals that were being relayed into and out of the claustrum. They observed it receiving signals from from several areas of the brain and sending signals out specifically to the motor cortex. And so therefore thought that it might be controlling Lots of interactive processes through the brain and voluntary behavior as well. Um, they were a little bit less philosophical about it than some of the other people we've been talking about. They kind of concluded that uh, the claustrum's control, quote, may include the neural correlates of consciousness. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but that's still, I mean, for science dudes, pretty, pretty high philosophical. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, that's, that, uh, yeah I think that's that's proper scientific rhetorical humility. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And so uh, this this result here, you know, I hesitate. I can't really call it a study because, again, that wasn't necessarily what they were looking for. But this result that the doctors found at George, the George Washington yeah. University, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that that seems to, again, give more evidence for support for that particular 
point of view, uh, it definitely feels like this gives more support for that the idea that consciousness is a manifestation of neurophysical processes, mm-hmm. that there is something to do with the brain, that the mind and the brain are one and the same. The mind itself is a manifestation of the brain. That's what it seems to support. Now, all that being said, here are some of those facts that we, we mentioned at the top we were going to have to bring into context in this discussion because – you can't make any sweeping scientific conclusion based upon this one incident. Uh, right. This this was a case study. And a case study, if you have never heard that particular medical term before, means that you are looking at a single patient at a single point in time and you're not even trying to draw any other data into the argument. Right. Right. So when you have a, a, uh, a you know, a, it's a nifty observation. Right. You've got one example and that's it. Uh, so that means that, first of all, you can't definitely conclude that that one example is representative of everyone's experience as a whole. Uh, right. Also, it makes a really boring chart. Yeah. <laughs> you have a, you have, yeah. It's, well, you have 100 percent, right? Because you've got the one person. So. 100 percent of participants. Yeah. With, of one participant. Yeah. So you have to keep in mind the sample size is a sample size of one. So you can't make any sweeping scientific conclusion based on the sample size of one. On top of that, I... I think I read somewhere, Jonathan, you might be able to confirm this, that this particular patient's brain was probably not what we would call typical. Right. She had had a previous surgical uh, procedure done where part of her hippocampus had been removed. Now, the hippocampus, as we've discussed in our optogenetics episode, is the part of the brain that's associated with forming memory. And so she had had part of that removed in a previous surgery. So... Her experience may not be typical of someone else's experience for that reason as well. Also, I mean, she had a pre-existing neurological condition suffering from pretty extreme epilepsy. So it might be that uh, this particular individual's brain is affected by stuff in the way that somebody else's brain might not be. Right. So you have to take all those sort of caveats into mind before you, you go any further. And... To make matters more complicated, we get back round to that problem we mentioned earlier. To do further study would require some pretty invasive procedures, right? I mean, it's not right. like we can easily say, oh, hey, get Jim in here and let's find out if it works on him, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in this. I'm not going to sign up for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it makes sense in this case because this was sort of a byproduct of attempted therapy, right? Oh, exactly. Sure. Trying to yeah. help this patient. Right. This wasn't, this wasn't a case of, well... This person ha- is already in this particular situation. Let's see if we can get them to agree to help us just do some exploratory research. That wasn't the case. The case was they were specifically trying to make this woman's life better. They were trying to figure out what is it that's causing these epileptic seizures so we can understand that better and not only help her, but potentially, if we learn enough about epilepsy in general, help future People who suffer from epilepsy. And as it turns out, this study might help even more people than that. Yeah. Yeah. As it turns out, if in fact this claustrum ends up being that on off switch, if it ends up being the kind of the gateway for us to understand more scientifically about what consciousness is and its role and, and how the mechanisms work, uh, you know, not saying we're there yet, but if this happens to lead to more research that does extend that understanding, we might be able to see some practical applications that could demonstrably make people's lives better. 
For example, there are people who suffer various ailments that impact their ability to have awareness of themselves and the environment around them. For example, people who are in a comatose state. Mm -hmm. And it may be that by understanding more about the mechanisms of consciousness, we can create new therapies that would help people come out of comatose states or people who have suffered from amnesia, which, you know, it sounds pretty similar. The idea that you have lost big blocks of time, you have no recollection of it, kind of coincides with this idea of, well, when you are unconscious, you're not collecting memories anymore. So maybe there's another relationship there, an inner relationship between memory and consciousness that we could further explore and perhaps help people who have suffered from these kind of uh, these kind of ailments. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting and might bear on the potential applications uh, is the distinction that you noted here in the notes. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good one to make between wakefulness and consciousness. Right. This was something that was observed in this particular case. Right. It, it's the idea that being awake and being conscious are different things. Right. You might say in even kind of a weird way that you could be considered conscious while you're asleep Say if you're having dreams or mm-hmm. something right. that you're still having an experience. So what if you were to flip that, just say that you are, in fact, awake, but you're not conscious? And that was one of those things that has been a matter of debate in philosophy for, for generations, right? The idea a lot of philosophers kind of combined wakefulness and consciousness as very much interrelated and that you could not have separate the two. Yeah, out. you sure. could you couldn't have consciousness without wakefulness was the idea. But apparently you can have wakefulness without consciousness. Now. Philosophically, perhaps you would debate whether or not the patient was truly wakeful, right? She was not asleep, yeah. Her, yeah, she, we're but she was also getting not getting into definitions of words. At that well, point. well, that's but, the thing. That's oh, what philosophy absolutely. does. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, no, no. I, I know. Yeah, I mean, if you want to define wakefulness as say uh, being able to say have motor control, like you, you can say words. Well, I don't know. People do that in their sleep. It yeah. is hard to define. It is. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, Brain stuff is tricky, yo. <laughs> that was going to be the alternate title of this particular episode. <laughs> Brain stuff is tricky, yo. But I figured I could not pull that off. So. Uh, but all of all of that aside, even this research could help with the originally intended study. Yep. Um, as it turns out, the patient's loss of consciousness was associated with increased synchronized activity across a few different parts of her brain. And as we mentioned earlier, kind of similar things happen during epileptic seizures. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an overwhelming electrical bit in the brain that yeah. happens. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the researchers think that minor synchronized activity means the brain is binding different aspects of an experience together, but that too much here might be overwhelming and disrupt the cohesion of thoughts or even consciousness as a whole. So up next in the future, they're going to be investigating whether a more mild stimulus to the region might kind of jolt the brain activity back to normal and prevent the seizure from Ever continuing. Interesting. Wow. Very really interesting. Cool. Yeah. Sort of like a pacemaker for seizures. Wow. And then uh, on top of that, our understanding of consciousness could extend beyond humans. We may be able to start looking at the concept of consciousness as it applies to other organisms. Oh, oh right. Wow. Yeah, because all of the mammals whose brains we've investigated so far have a clostrum. Yeah. But yep. some animals probably don't. Right. right. 
Yeah, there's so, some, so non-mammals <laughs> may not have this. And so the question is, well, first of all, it you have to you have to assume that the claustrum does in fact play a key role yeah, if, in consciousness. If so, we were to discover that, yeah. So if that holds true, then does that mean that mammals have at least some level of consciousness? And again, this may mean that we have to start better defining what consciousness is, perhaps creating a spectrum of consciousness. And whether you know when you say an animal is conscious, what does that actually mean in in the within the spectrum, right? Yeah, and it's really interesting to have this very concrete thing to look at as opposed to previous tests of consciousness that are a little bit more psychological. Um, there's, for example, what's called the mirror test, wherein you take a critter, put a glob of something on its face, stick it in front of a mirror. If the critter tries to wipe the thing off of its face, that means that it is recognizing itself in the mirror uh, and right. realizing that it's got something there and is going like, ah, get it off, get it off. As opposed to either thinking that whatever the thing is in the mirror is another creature or not recognizing it as something at all. Right, exactly. Um, and there are a few animals that can pass this mirror test. The great apes, dolphins, uh, orca, elephants, and the European magpie, actually. So one bird is in there as well. Interesting. But, uh, you know, that's not always a terrific test, even for, for all animals. Like, if you did that to an octopus, it would fail the test. However, octopi use tools and... Dis- they, they show amazing ingenuity to yeah. problem-solving skills. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and some might even, I think, question the, the definition of consciousness that's being approached there. I mean... Mm-hmm. That seems to raise that that difference between consciousness and self-consciousness. Like, is one having an experience versus is one, uh, I don't know, having an image of the self? Yeah, an awareness of the self in some form. Yeah, it, again, this is where More it starts definitions getting... Yeah, it gets yeah. philosophy. All, it gets sure. all super fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention some of the animals are also super fuzzy. They are. Then, Especially octopi. So so the way I concluded the episode, uh, the video episode, is really how we're going to kind of wrap up this one, too. The idea that if we are, in fact, on the pathway to getting a better grip, scientifically speaking, on the mechanisms of consciousness, if we get to a point where, uh, let's say... <laughs> 10 to 20 years, uh, or however, whatever, you know, the, the X unit of time that means a long time from now, but not so long not as to be. Not inconceivably long. Right. Yeah. That somewhere in that time frame, we get to a point where we have a really keen understanding of what's going on within the brain as far as consciousness is concerned. It doesn't seem like that far of a stretch. Granted, right now we don't know anything, but that far of a stretch that we might be able to replicate that, to simulate that in some way, and then to give that that state to an artificial being, a machine, and have machine consciousness. Kind of scary. I mean, one of the big limitations right now that people say they're to having like an artificially intelligent machine that has that strong AI human-like intelligence, and which for a lot of people also includes this idea of sentience and self-awareness. It doesn't have to have that, but for right. a lot of people's concept, that usually goes hand in hand. That a lot of people say, well, that's almost impossible to do because we don't understand it in ourselves. But it could be that. The stuff we're seeing today is just that that gentle creak of the door opening, just a little tiny crack. And that maybe in a few decades, 
will have actually understood enough where that will no longer be the limiting factor. Now, there may be some other limiting factor that eventually <laughs> tells us we cannot create a simulation of this. But the interesting thing here is saying, look, we're starting to learn things scientifically about consciousness. And this was something that some philosophers thought was an impossibility. Yeah. So I find it really exciting. Uh, I did try and, and caution people saying this is this stuff is years or decades away from it ever being something that is practical. Uh, practical in any any yes. use because we're we don't even know what we know yet and until we have that settled we can't start building on it but it is really exciting yeah any what anything else you guys want to add before we try and brave the terrible uh tsunami that's outside i think it's let up yeah, I think so, too. I'm actually feeling pretty good about it right now, which is kind of why I'm thinking there's a break in the clouds. We should conclude and get out of here. Yes. All right. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, remember, if you have any suggestions for future episodes or any questions for us, anything like that, let us know on Facebook, Twitter or Google Plus. Our handle at all three is FW Thinking. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. 
It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.